Hey, uh, we are going to continue this morning um, a two-part series that I started last week, and I guess I've come up with a name. I think we're going to call this the DreamWorks. Um, and so uh, if you uh, need context for this, I'm not going to re-preach the whole intro that I gave last week, but uh, you can go back and watch last week's um, service. That would be fine. But uh, basically, I had, a, I had a dream while I was on vacation about a month ago, a recurring dream, and all I remembered about this dream was Isaiah 28 and 29. And so last week I preached Isaiah 28, and this week we're going to wrap it up with Isaiah 29. Can we do this? It went awesome in the Niner. I mean, the Spirit showed up. People didn't want to leave. They were just confessing their sins openly. None of that happened. Actually, it was, it was, it was a decent time. We had a good time, but I hope that the Spirit speaks to you guys in a way that you understand it today. Because these are tough passages. I, I said this last week when I, when I woke up from that dream and excitedly went to read these passages, and then I read these passages, I thought, I wish I hadn't read these passages. Um, because they're, some, they're definitely judgment passages, but they're also sprinkled with Jesus throughout. And so last week, I hope you saw that. This week, we'll see where we can find them again today. Are we ready? All right. Isaiah 29. We're going to start... Um, by reading the uh, first 12 verses, okay? We're going to kind of break it apart like that. And, and like the, the first 12 verses is kind of the hard part. It's, it's describing the judgment, and uh, we'll talk about what's going on here in a second. Okay, so here we go. Isaiah 29, verse 1. Ah, Ariel, Ariel, the city where David encamped. Add year to year. Let the feast run their round. Yet I will distress Ariel, and there shall be moaning and lamentation, and she shall be to me like an Ariel. And I will encamp against you all around. I will besiege you with towers, and I will raise siege works against you. You will be brought low, and from the earth you shall speak, and from the dust your speech will be bowed down. Your voice shall come from the ground like the voice of a ghost, and from the dust your speech shall whisper. But the multitude of your foreign foes shall be like small dust, and the multitude of the ruthless like passing chaff. And in an instant, suddenly, you will be visited by the Lord of hosts with thunder and with earthquake and with great noise, with whirlwind and tempest, and the flame of a devouring fire. And the multitude of all the nations that fight against Ariel, all that fight against her and her stronghold and distress her, shall be like a dream, a vision of the night as when a hungry man dreams, and behold, he is eating, and he awakes, and his hunger is not satisfied. Or when a thirsty man dreams, and behold, he is drinking, and awakes faint with his thirst not quenched. So shall the multitude of all the nations be that fight against Mount Zion. Astonish yourselves and be astonished. Blind yourselves and be blind. Be drunk but not with wine. Stagger but not with strong drink. For the Lord has poured out upon you a spirit of deep sleep and has closed your eyes, the prophets, and covered your heads, the seers. And the vision of all this has become to you like words of a book that is sealed. And when men give it to one who can read, saying, read this, he says, I cannot, for it is sealed. And when they give the book to one who cannot read, saying, read this, he says, I cannot read. As I read that, after awaking from a dream and realizing he's talking about dreaming, 
in a dream, because this is a vision of Isaiah, and it sounded really ominous. And I'm thinking first and foremost, I'm glad my name's not Ariel, because it sounds like it's going to be bad for Ariel. Guess where I went to look to find out the name of, the meaning of the name Ariel? The Bible. I went to the Bible. And babynames.com. If you go to either, you find out that the word Ariel can mean a multitude of things. One of the things it can mean is Lion of God. Lion of God. And, and it's used as kind of, in a different sense, a, a, little, a few verses down where it says, you shall be to me like an Ariel. And that has a different meaning that we'll get to here in just a second. But we find out in verse, verse 1... Ah, Ariel, Ariel, the city where David encamped. The city where David encamped is the city of Jerusalem. It's called the city of David. So he's talking to the children of God who live in the city of Jerusalem. And so that word ah, if you translated it correctly into English, it would really mean woe. Like woe is you. Like Jesus used, in the Greek, it would be the word that he used to to address the Pharisees when he said, woe to you, Pharisees. Bad news for you. Sound the alarm for you, Ariel, the city of Jerusalem. He's talking to his own people. Um, And he's not happy. Let me ask you a question. There's some kids still in the room that didn't go to Kids Rock. I've got a question for you. Levi, you don't have to answer this out loud. Have you ever been in trouble and you didn't really know why? This is the nod of agreement. Have you ever, like, kids, have you ever, or parents, because this is my childhood. Like, I remember distinctly, my dad was a, was a refinery worker, so he worked shift work, and sometimes, you know, he worked midnight shift, and, and it was always changing, but... But I always kind of walked on eggshells because when dad was asleep, nobody could make any noise. And sometimes I didn't realize I was making noise. Okay, and so I didn't know I was in trouble until dad got up, you know. But there were times I would come home from school and I would immediately know I'm in trouble. But I don't know why. It's not that I don't deserve to be in trouble. Michael, I just don't know what they found out about, you know. It's like I've done some things, but I don't know what I should confess to, what I should still play dumb to. You guys are probably better people than me. This probably never happened to you. Let me bring it into a different context. Husbands and wives. Any married people in the room today? My wife was in the early service, so now I can speak freely. (laughs) Except for these cameras. Anyway, hypothetically speaking, in your homes, men, has there ever been a time when you came home from work and you're preoccupied about the things of the day, you walk in the door, maybe your wife has, has cooked a nice dinner, maybe she's just been trying to keep the house nice. Maybe the kids have been driving her crazy and she needs a kind word from you, but you're a little preoccupied and maybe you don't respond appropriately and you're so mindless you don't even realize it and then you realize when you come back into the room the mood has changed and she's a little icy and you know you're in trouble but you really don't know what careless thing that you said that caused the mood to change, right? That, feel that feeling, okay? It's kind of a helpless feeling. And if you just pick up the Bible and you start reading in Isaiah 29, right there, then you read this and you, have, you know they're in trouble. 
But they're, they're wondering, okay, I know we've done some stuff. I mean, read the Old Testament. That, there's plenty of things that the children of Israel had done that would make the father mad, right? But right here, ah, Ariel, whoa. Why, but why, God? What, 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 what did we do? Because if you just read this as a snapshot, a point in time, you don't really have a context for what they did. But just like in your marriage, in your conversations with your wife or your, your relationship with your children, that snapshot of you being in trouble at any given point in time is much bigger than that moment in time. It goes back to probably a conversation that you did or didn't have weeks ago or a, a things you haven't addressed months ago, right? Because life is not a series of snapshots. It's a, it's a, it's a motion picture. Everything is connected. And so while we look at Isaiah 29 and we see that God is not happy with Jerusalem, with, with his people, all we get at the end of verse 1 is this. Ah, Ariel, Ariel, the city where David encamped, add year to year. Let the feast run their round. What does that mean? I mean, here, I mean, it doesn't seem like add year to year, let the feast run their round. See, he's talking about religious activity. He's talking about all these feasts and festivals and traditions and all the things that they, they do that God told them to do. But they had, they, had, they had adopted a mindset that doing them was the end goal and not a means to worship. How do I know that? Well, if we go back to Isaiah chapter 1, we see that they're really without excuse. They should know exactly why God was upset. Isaiah 1, verse 11. God speaking. The very beginning of Isaiah's prophecy. He says this. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams, of the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon, new moons and Sabbaths and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. I cannot endure sin and worship. They don't coexist. Your new moons and your appointed feast, my soul hates. They become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. And it's almost like he's saying, am I making myself clear? I don't like all this stuff that you're doing in the name of worship. Verse 15, when you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil from your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Come. Now let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins be like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become wool. If you are willing to be obedient... You shall eat of the good of the land. But if you refuse, if you rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The children of God 
knew exactly why God was upset. And this, in Isaiah 29, is God dropping the hammer because they had not been obedient. They had not repented. And God just says, just let the calendar keep going. Just do it again and think it's going to have a different result. He was not happy. But note in chapter 1, they still had a choice. They still had a choice, but it all depended on their response. Remember last week as I talked about Isaiah 28, I made this statement. I said that one of the most significant moments in the life of anyone is that moment in which you hear the Word of God, you hear a truth, and you're forced to make a choice. Am I going to respond to it? Am I going to change? Or am I going to try to just rationalize why I'm going to keep living exactly the way I'm living? God was fed up. There was a time of judgment coming because they refused to change. This is a picture of judgment without Jesus. It's a picture of judgment without Jesus. We'll talk about the Jesus part of this. Jesus is going to change everything. He's going to make it possible for us to live up to the standard, not by being good enough, but by carrying His grace with us. We'll find out that in a minute. But right now, this is not a good time to be a child of God in Jerusalem. Because in verse 2, it says, Ariel, I will distress Ariel. I, God... I'm coming against my own people for their own good. He says they're going to be moaning, lamentation, and she shall be to me like an Ariel. I said just a second ago that word Ariel um, has other meanings. I mean, it could be the little mermaid. I don't think that's the biblical context. I think the biblical context here, you will be to me like an Ariel, is the name of the altar that they used to make the sacrifices was called an aerial. God is saying, you're my people, and I love you, but you're not listening to me, and so I'm going to make you the altar. You are going to be the place where things are placed to burn up. It's going to get hot. It's going to be uncomfortable. I'm going to burn away the things that I don't like for your good. Guys, never forget that when we go through things, where God is is trying to purify our lives, it is for our good, but it is never going to feel good. We'll talk about that a little more in a second. I will encamp against you. It's not like he's just going to punish. No, he's setting up camp against his people. He says, I'm going to besiege you. You'll be brought low. You'll be bowed down. And your voice shall come from the ground. Your dust shall. The dust will be where your speech is whispered. Why? God, why you got to be that way, God? It's because they've been so proud and boastful and they've, they've been flaunting in front of God, saying, I really don't care what you think, God. I'm going to do your ritual, but I'm going to make it about me. Guys, is it possible that this still happens today? Is it possible that we... Even here, when we worship, we make it about us. That we have our routine. We come here on Sundays. We we watch online on Sundays. We're faithful. We don't miss it. But like the song that we sang earlier said, God, do we ever come to the point of saying, God, I'm sorry. 
when I come with my agenda. I'm sorry when I just sing another song. I'm sorry. Guys, I'm sorry needs to be more than words. It needs to be a life changed. See, the enemy doesn't care if you feel bad about yourself. In fact, he likes it. He wants you to feel awful. He just doesn't want you to change. He's, a, he's an accuser. He's a condemner. You, you know this. You hear these. You, you have to hear him accusing you all the time. But that's not who you are. But if he can keep you there without changing, without ever repenting, if he can keep you doing exactly what made God so mad that these people were doing, if he can keep you there, he's got you where he wants you. So don't, don't confuse guilt and conviction. We're all guilty, right? But conviction is from the Holy Spirit. And it's, it's, it leads to redemption. See, guilt just leads to condemnation. See, be careful which voices you're listening to because this is not just a problem that they had thousands of years ago. This is a problem that we all share today. See, the Bible says that there's nothing new under the sun. And the hearts of men and women ever since the fall, way back in Genesis, have been the same. We all share this tendency to wander away. The Bible says all of us like sheep have gone astray. We're just, we just wander off trying to get, we get distracted. We, we have to continually check ourselves. Otherwise, the enemy will be more than happy to let us wreck ourselves, okay? He will encamp against us, but he does it for our own good. But why, God? Why, why does it have to hurt so bad? You ever wonder that? I mean, why can't this just be like pulling a tooth? It's been a long time since I lost a tooth. Like, like I, I love seeing these kids where it's just dangling right there. You know, every time they breathe, it goes... <laughs> and I'm thinking, why don't you just pull that thing out? Because when one of mine got loose, man, I wanted it out as soon as possible because I hated that feeling. Why does it have to hurt so bad? Why can't you just pull it out and be done? Here's the reason. Because sometimes God has to hurt us in order to ultimately heal us. Sometimes God has to hurt us in order to ultimately heal us. Have any parents in the room ever spanked your children? I mean, it's not fun. If it is fun, you need counseling. Okay, it's not fun. My daughter Kayla has had two spankings in her life, and both times I cried before she cried. Okay, it's just, it's not fun, but it was for her good. The same thing applies physically and spiritually. Think about this surgeons have to cut through healthy tissue to get to the root of the problem. Our friend Larry Turner's laying in a hospital bed. Today, in Cleveland, Ohio, had an open-heart surgery. They had to cut through a lot of stuff that wasn't broken to, to fix what was on the inside. And he's been in excruciating pain ever since. If you've watched anybody go through cancer, radiation treatments, chemotherapy treatments, some of you have been through it yourself. You know that it, it just has an incredible toll on the whole body just to try to kill 
the tumor. Dentists. You go to a dentist and they take that drill and and it isn't until they get to the that they're really getting into what they need to get into, but they're drilling away healthy enamel to get down to the decay. And it's painful. Physical therapy. You go in and they're trying to rehab one muscle and it feels like they break you in half trying to get you to, to use that muscle. This, this is true physically and it's true spiritually. See, in the New Testament, the Bible talks about the conditions of our heart. And it talks about the hearts of the people were calloused. They were hardened. They couldn't feel anymore what they were supposed to feel. And so this is a picture of God going into our heart, ripping away whatever he needs to rip away so that we can feel again. See, these are deep-seated, deep-seated spiritual issues. And genuine repentance sometimes requires it. It sometimes requires suffering, pain, but not just pain for pain's sake. Pain so that we feel the way we're supposed to feel again. So we can hear the way we're supposed to hear again. So we're, we see what we're supposed to see. But he never does that. He never does that just for the sake of punishing you. Anytime anything like that comes from God, it comes from a place of him loving you enough to be honest with you. And say, this needs to change. That's what he was doing with his children right here. I don't think it brought him joy to set up and camp, to be encamped against his people. But he's willing to do whatever he has to do for their good. One little aside before we move on. In, in verses 5 through 8, he kind of flips the script a little bit. Verses 1 through 4, he's talking about, he's talking about Israel... He's talking about Ariel and Jerusalem. He's talking about punishing his people, kind of cleansing his people. But then in verses 5 through 8, he, he shifts and he starts talking about everybody else that's not Israel. Anyone that might come against them. And he says pretty much this, anybody else that tries to come against you, I've got that too. He, he basically says they're all going to be, like they think they might be able to attack you now, but no, I'm dealing with you now. I'll take care of all of them. They'll be like a dream. Like they, they think they got something on you, but no, I'm still your protector. Some of you need to, real, to just let this in today. Because maybe you're mad at God today. Because this is not easy stuff. Maybe you're in one of these seasons right now, and you feel like, like all heaven is against you. Even in times like that, you have a protector. You have a protector, someone who ultimately is for your good. This world's not for your good. But all this world wants to do is kill, steal, and destroy. Lies are the native tongue of this world. But you have a protector that even when things are, even when things are just unexplainably horrible, he loves you and he's not going to leave you. We all share the same disease. But we all have a protector. Verses 9 through 12, the last part of what we just read, talks about spiritual blindness. It says, it's like, a book, it's like words written in a book that someone can't read because they says it's sealed. 
It's like they can't read because it's a language we don't understand. Spiritual blindness. See, that's, that's one of the main symptoms of this condition that he's addressing in his people. It's the same condition that some of us share today. See, the blindness is so offensive to God because he's not talking about like some, some, some tribal, some tribe in, in Africa or Australia that lives way out in the bush that has never heard the word Jesus. He's talking to his chosen people whose ancestors had walked through the Red Sea on dry land, who had, who had been at the base of the mountain when Moses came down with the Ten Commandments, who saw the sun leading them through the, through the wilderness. His covenant people, these are the ones that didn't understand, that didn't care to understand what he was doing. So he's upset. And he's, he's about to drop the hammer. And he's about to tell us exactly why. And this applies to us today. Verses 13 through 16. Let's read what the Word says. These verses are probably familiar to most of you. And the Lord said, Because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men, therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people, with wonder upon wonder, and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. Ah, you who hide deep from the Lord your counsel, whose deeds are in the dark, and who say, who sees us? Who knows us? You turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay that the thing that is, that the thing made should say of its maker, he did not make me? Or the thing formed say of him who formed it, he has no understanding? See, in Isaiah chapter 1, God laid it out all this ceremonial stuff you're doing, this ritual stuff you're calling worship, has nothing to do with me. And I'm sick of it. And here he says, let me boil it down to you. Because this people draw near to me with their mouths, they praise me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Therefore, this is what I'm going to do. And he says... I will do wonderful things with this people. Guys, that wonderful right there is not wonderful. I mean, could have used another word. It could, could have been miraculous, awesome, unexplainable, unfathomable. But he says wonderful, wonder upon wonder. And the wisest people won't understand it. The discerning ones, they won't, they won't be able to discern what I'm doing because it's all just lip service for them. Their hearts aren't in it. Here's my question for us today. And, okay, let me ask you a question. Think about your life. A normal Monday. You don't want to think about Mondays right now. Friday. Let's think about Friday. A normal Friday. How many inauthentic conversations do you think you have in a normal day? Inauthentic conversations. What do I mean by that? Well, okay, suppose you're passing someone at work in the hallway and you say, how are you doing today? And they actually start to tell you. And you're thinking, I was just looking for fine. 
I really don't want to know, but you have to stand there and you listen, but your heart's not in it. And they think you're kind, but in your mind, you're thinking, I'm busy. I got stuff to do. You ever take a phone call? Does anybody... I remember when, when I thought it was magic, the first time caller ID was a thing. And you could actually see who was calling before you picked up the phone. This was back in Houston when I was, I was a pastor in Houston, and we didn't have it back then. It was landlines and bag phones, okay? And so our landline, we, had, we still had an answer machine. And there was one, one blessed soul in my church that liked to call every night at about 8 o'clock. Every night the phone would ring. And I'm thinking, I'm not answering that tonight. I don't know if it's him, but if it's him, that's, not, that's 9.15 before that's over. But when I would answer, or one of my kids would answer, Dad, it's for you. And then I have to be nice. Hey, Rod, how are you? This is not the Rod that I knew here. It was a different guy. Yeah, yeah. And I, and I endure it. And to him, I'm, I'm sure he's... I mean, I'm trying to be kind, but in my mind, my heart's not there. Guys, that's, that's inauthentic. You know that. When you have a phone conversation with someone, and you say, oh, thanks for calling, you hang up, and you start having the conversation that you really wanted to have on the phone, and you start saying everything you were thinking, that means that was an inauthentic conversation. Guys, we condition ourselves to live this way. It's called being polite. It's politically correct, but it's inauthentic. And it seeps its way into our worship even. We come in here and we sing songs that we know our hearts don't line up with. And we're okay with it. And it's not okay to be okay with it. It's not, I'm, not, I'm not mad at you guys. I'm talking about my heart. We have the same disease. It's so easy to not engage our heart and just do what we think the right thing is supposed to be and thinking it pleases God. You know, I'm not saying it doesn't please God for you to be kind to that person and have that conversation, but it doesn't please God to not be an authentic person, to not really be kind on the inside and just be kind on the outside. Does that make sense? This applies to the way we worship, and it applies to how God sees our worship. Superficial, pretentious, inauthentic worship is what brought down the wrath of God on these people. These people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me. The fear of me is a commandment taught by men. Ray Ortland Jr., who wrote a commentary in the book of Isaiah, said, said it this way about worship. Inauthentic worship. Beneath the beautiful observances, they were using the worship of God as a mechanism for avoiding God, for controlling God, and setting limits on God. It's like, God, I'm going to do, I'm going to follow all your rules, but then you owe me. That's how they were living. Jonathan Edwards said this about worship. Without love in the heart, the seeming gift of worship is but a mockery of the Most High. Without love in your heart, if you're just going through the motions, if you're just doing it because your mama and daddy told you you had to do it, if you're doing it so your kids will be in church, and that's the only reason you're doing it, it's a mockery of the Most High. Does that make anybody kind of quiver 
a little bit. Because all of us, like sheep, have gone astray. All of us are prone to this. Because we have an enemy that's always trying to tempt us and lure us into half-heartedness. Jesus quoted this verse in Mark chapter 7. He quoted this verse in Mark chapter 7. He's talking to the Pharisees. And he quoted it because he wanted to get across the point that his problem with the Pharisees was not that they knew all the religious rules. His problem with them was that their hearts were never in it. It was never motivated by love. And so Pharisees had come to Jesus and said, Hey, Jesus, why is it that the people that hang around with you don't wash their hands before they eat? And so Jesus takes the opportunity in Mark chapter 7, verses 18 through 23. I'll read this. And he said to them, this is Jesus talking to the Pharisees, Then you are also without understanding. Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him? since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled. Thus he declared all foods to be clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness, All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. See, Travis, they come out of a man's heart. They come out of a woman's heart. It's not what you take in that defiles you. It's what is in your heart. The condition of your heart is all that God is concerned with. We spend so much time and so much money trying to take care of the outside of the cup. Clean the outside of the cup. Make the outside of the cup prettier. And Jesus said, the inside, it's, it's like on the inside you're full of dead man's bones. And you don't care. Guys, we need to care about the inside because the heart is where worship comes from. Question, where's your heart today? Where's your heart? What have you given it to? What do you care about? More than anything. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus said that it's important because where your treasure is, there your heart's going to be. So what do you love? What are the things that we value more than we value God? I don't say that to condemn you or assume I know the answer to that. I do know this. I know a lot of times, I saw this in the room this morning. And I, I do it myself when we worship. A lot of times our posture is like this. Our posture is like this. You know, when, when you're like this, it's impossible to hold on to things. We open our hands and we release things, anything else that we treasure. And we say, nothing else. Nothing else will do. I just want you nothing else. And our hands are open and we're reaching, but then if we're honest with ourselves and we look around at shiny things or the things that we value, we might be tempted to keep one hand up and grab something with the other hand. Before you know, oh, we got to have that too. And we're still standing before God saying, nothing else, nothing else. But He's looking at us. He knows our hearts. He knows what we really value, people. He knows. 
Revelation chapter 2, verses 4 and 5 might just be an indictment of, of the, a church in America today on a broad scale and on an individual scale. And it, He was talking to the church at Ephesus and he said, but this one thing I have against you, you've forgotten your first love. You've forgotten your first love. Remember. Remember. It's like if you've seen the Lion King, and I know it's all New Age stuff, but Mufasa's talking to Simba, remember who you are. Remember who you are. It's possible. You don't have to always think like this. You don't always have to sell out to things of this world. Remember the heights from which you've fallen and go back and do those. Love that way again. That's what God would say to us today. Because of Jesus, it is possible for you to remember your first love. He accused these people of upside-down thinking. He said, you got it so wrong, it's upside-down. You know you can't be any more, any farther away from being upright than being upside-down. It's like the opposite of the way it should be. And he said, you've turned it so far backwards that it's like a lump of clay telling the potter what you want to, what do you want to be? Make me this way. This is what I want you to do for me, God. And that's, that's, that's how we live our lives sometimes, isn't it? I mean, that could define a lot of our prayer lives. If all your prayers are about you, it's time to reevaluate your prayer life. It's time to, to maybe flip it, just flip the script a little bit. See, we convince ourselves. And when I say we, by the way, that's a collective we. I'm part of we. Do you ever forget the fact that there's nowhere you can hide from God? There is nowhere that He can't see you. There's nowhere that He doesn't know you. These people did. Isaiah's, God says through Isaiah to these people. Ah, whoa. This is, this is verse 15. You who hide deep from the Lord your counsel, whose deeds are in the dark, and who say, who sees us? Who knows us? He's talking to the children of God. He's talking to God's people who are hiding from Him. Guys, we need to wake up and realize that your whole life is played out on a stage before God. Every second, every minute, every act, no matter how private, in the New Testament it talks about those things done in dark being shouted from the rooftops. Guys, that would scare me to death if not for Jesus. If not for the fact that I have a Savior who makes it possible for me to please God. See, that's where Jesus comes into the story. Because see, we have this bad habit of telling God what our lives should look like rather than yielding to what God wants to do in us. That's what He wanted from these people back in Isaiah chapter 29, and it's what He wants from you guys today. But He knew we couldn't do it. He knew we couldn't do it. And so 
there was coming a day, and this is where Jesus enters this story. Starting in verse 17, we're going to read like 17 through 21. Let's see what the Word says. Is it not yet a very little while until Lebanon shall be turned into a fruitful field, and the fruitful field shall be regarded as a forest? In that day, the deaf shall hear the words of a book. And out of their gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind shall see, the meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord. That's beautiful. We'll come back to that in a second. That is awesome. The meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord. And the poor among all mankind shall exult the Holy One of Israel. For the ruthless shall come to nothing and the scoffer cease, and all who watch to do evil shall be cut off, who by a word make a man out to be an offender and lay a snare for him who reproves in the gate, and with an empty plea turn aside him who is in the right. Guys, deaf people hearing, blind people seeing, people getting fresh joy in the Lord... Joy is a, is a fruit of the Spirit. Okay, If you have the Spirit in you, you might not feel joyful right now, but joy is in you. It's growing in your life. Okay, But is anybody in here honest enough to say, it's been a long time since like, the joy of my salvation felt like joy? Is there anyone here that when you hear something, the meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord? Fresh joy. I said this in the first service. It's like... I love the smell of fresh baked bread. I mean, in my, um, it just makes me happy. Fresh bread, bacon. I could hang out there all day. Guys, just picture that. Whatever that is for you. Do you long for your joy in Jesus? Your joy in God to be that fresh? To smell that good? See, a lot of us are walking around with this this like dried up piece of Melba toast for joy. You know, it's just, it's been there a long time and it's really, it's, it's, the, it's the thing that you eat when there's nothing else to eat. Like there's this one seafood restaurant in Gulf Shores. We would go all the time and it took forever for the food to come and they'd put a, they'd put a basket of crackers and some butter on the table. And I'm thinking, I wish this was a Mexican restaurant. I mean, seriously. And then all the real crackers would get eaten by the kids. And all that's left is Melba toast. Only time in my life I would ever eat that stuff. Guys, your joy should never be compared to Melba toast. It should be fresh. It should be new because the mercies of God are new every day. But yet our joy gets stale and stagnant. All this stuff, the poor exalting the Holy One, no more ruthlessness in the streets. Scoffers being shut up. It's all stuff Jesus is going to do. In Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 3, you might recognize this. Talking about Jesus. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because He has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. See, what we have going for us that the, that the people Isaiah was talking to don't, didn't have going for them is we have judgment with Jesus. 
See, His righteousness has become our righteousness. And so we don't have to just have empty, superficial, pretentious worship because we have the Spirit of the living God inside of us. And so even on our worst day, that Spirit doesn't leave us. We can call on that Spirit and the grace of Jesus to bust open those prison doors, to break those chains that many times are self-inflicted. You know, we shackle ourselves to things that He's freed us from. Guys, judgment with Jesus is a totally different thing, and the outcome is totally different. And the end of this chapter, as scary as the first part is, the end of it is so beautiful because the outcome is a people capable of authentic worship. It is possible for us, as broken as we are, and as jacked up as we are, to come together as the body of Christ in our brokenness, knowing He knows us, and throw it all at the foot of the cross, and somehow God's pleased with that. See, it's not just about law-dog religion of just being good enough. It's about what He's done for us. And then because of what He's done for us, we actively engage in the process. See, I think that's where it falls apart for some of us. It's not that we're not saved, but it keeps our joy looking like Melba toast when we don't actively engage in warring against the sin in our lives. One of our we will statements is we will acknowledge our sin, make war on it, but not be defined by it. Guys, when we give up on that war, we settle for Melba toast joy. We settle for just a mediocre, average life when He came to give us life and life to the full. Let's read the rest of the chapter. I think I left off at like verse 22. Therefore, thus says the Lord who redeemed Abraham concerning the house of Jacob, Jacob shall no more be ashamed. No more shall his face grow pale. For when he sees his children, the work of my hands in his midst, they will sanctify my name. They will sanctify the Holy One of Jacob and will stand in awe of the God of Israel. This chapter in verse 13, God's out of His mind angry because these people worshipped me with their lips, but their hearts were far from me. But the end of the chapter, because of what Jesus was going to do, people are going to stand and sanctify the name of God. They're going to stand in awe of the Holy One of Israel. Guys, look at the very last verse of the chapter. Very last verse. And those who go away in spirit will come to understanding. And those who murmur will accept instruction. That's all of you. That's all of us. Because we all, like sheep, have gone astray. All of us wander because of Jesus. We will come to understanding. It's possible for you today to have fresh joy. It is possible for you to feel the favor of God on your life again. It is possible for you not to be defined by your mistakes and not just crater under what you feel like is the judgment of God. But you have a part to play in it. Remember in Isaiah 1, 16, as God's just laying down the hammer about everything He doesn't like about their worship? He gave them some responsibility. He said, wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil from your deeds. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. 
Then your sins will be white as snow if you're willing and obedient. Guys, doesn't that sound a lot like Old Testament, like law dog kind of keep all the rules and check the boxes and then God will be happy with us? You know why it sounds like that? Because that's what it is. It is Old Testament, keep the rules, kind of, but it carries over into the New Testament. Why would you say that, Mark? Well, because it carries over into the New Testament. Look at James chapter 4, and we're going to close with this. James chapter 4, in verses 4 through 10. This is a picture of where we live. This side of the cross, everything Jesus had accomplished had been accomplished by this point. And this is God's expectation of a believer today. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it's to no purpose that the Scripture says He yearns jealously over the Spirit that He has made to dwell in us? God does not like it when we who have the Holy Spirit in us choose to love the world more than we love God. He yearns jealously about that. It's not okay. It's not okay. This is New Testament stuff. But then look at this. But He gives more grace. That's good news. I mean, seriously, you guys should clap for that or something because we deserve not more grace. But He gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And then, look at this. Verse 7. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. This doesn't mean that God just wants you to be sad all the time. This is what it means. Take seriously the sin in your life that you know about. Let it bother you. I told you guys last week as I, as I got into this stuff, I felt like God was saying, deal with it personally. And then just let the Spirit deal with everybody else. That dealing with it personally is not fun. It takes a lot of time in the mirror and saying, that's not pretty, is it? That's not okay, is it? And then moving beyond that to changing it. Guys, my, my cry for you, because I'm sick of this passage. I'm sick of swimming around in judgment. I want to hang out on the Jesus part, but this is the thing. To get there, you have a responsibility for your own spiritual walk you can't i can't fix it brock can't fix it your mom and daddy can't fix it humble yourself before the lord get low be honest with them if it's ugly admit to god that it's ugly if it doesn't belong in in your life admit to god it doesn't belong in your life and then trust him to carry it See, he's already done all the heavy lifting. The forgiveness part is done. You're forgiven, by the way. So stop carrying around things 
you're not equipped to carry around. Cry out to God, God, I want to I draw near to you because you promise you're going to draw near to me. I want to come before you with open hands without holding on to all this other stuff. He promises fresh joy. Don't you want it? Are you tired maybe of holding on to stuff that doesn't satisfy you anyway? Maybe today's the day you let go of some of it. Knowing that if it's hard, if it hurts, He's just trying to heal you. No one loves you more than He does. Don't listen to the lies that try to convince you otherwise. Pray with me. Father, my prayer is that You would unseal the book. Let us understand what You're saying. Let us understand enough of Your heart to just trust You. And may we stop just shoving blessing after blessing into our pocket and then ignoring the blesser. Let us be a people who don't just worship You with our lips, but may our hearts be drawn to You. May we draw near to You and You will draw near to us. God, what a beautiful promise. I pray for joy, fresh joy, to be experienced by some men and women, some students in this room as they just take seriously warring on the sin in their lives. And as they take it seriously, may they find you walking with them the whole way, knowing that they've been forgiven already. Let them live like forgiven people. That's my prayer. Let's stand together and worship in response to the Word.